Everybody needs money. That's why they call it money. The best things in life are free. But you can give them to the birds and bees. I From Fool Global Headquarters, this is Motley Fool Money. It's the Motley Fool Money Radio Show. I'm Chris Hill, and joining me in studio this week from Million Dollar Portfolio, Jason Moser and Matt Argusinger, and from Million Dollar Portfolio and Supernova, Simon Erickson. Good to see you as always, gentlemen. Hey, hey. hey. We've right. got the latest earnings from Wall Street. We will dip into the Fool mailbag, and as always, we'll give you an inside look at the stocks on our radar. But we begin this week with the big macro. February jobs report showed nearly 250,000 jobs added, with the unemployment rate holding steady at 4.9%. Looks good on the surface, Matty. Great on the surface. And, you know, guys, we're not a political show, and I'm not making any kind of political call here. But I really do think there's a bit of a false narrative about the economy, about the country being spouted by certain presidential candidates. We won't, they won't be named here. All of them? Probably all of them. <laughs> I mean, I understand that. It definitely supports uh, their narrative. I just think this re- jobs report, reports like this job figure, tend to dispel a lot of that. I mean, if you go back seven years ago, you know, we were in the middle of the deepest recession in a generation. Unemployment was around 10%. Gas prices were above $3 a gallon. Housing prices were crashing. The stock market was at a 10-year low. And look where we are today. Unemployment is below 5%. You have gas prices under $2. Home prices are hitting records in a lot of cities. Uh, yes, and, and even though it's been volatile, the stock market is, is really close to an all-time high. And so, I just, I just, in this report, just is another indication of how strong and resilient our country and the U.S. economy is. And I just, uh, I, I wish that was being a little bit touted a little more in the political discourse that's flying across this country right well, now. You said it right there, Maddie. I mean, this is a double whammy that's both good news for the stock market, right? You've got strong economy, you've got companies adding jobs and hiring at a good pace. But then on top of that, the Fed is, is also hesitant to raise interest rates, which pushes down discount rates and rises stock market valuations. I think the market is correctly responding to the, the double threat of good news there. Yeah, to me, the the jobs report to me is less about the numbers that are presented the day of the report and more about the revisions that come from that report. Because totally. uh, yeah. to me, I mean, there are always going to be revisions, and to me, they're more telling because they, in theory, should be more accurate because they're revisions, right? You following my logic there? Kind of have so more, yeah, more this this more report, time, more data. Revisions yeah. actually show that there were more jobs than initially reported. So I, that is all good. I think we we need to continue to look for wage growth because I think wage growth is going to be pivotal here. Uh, not such a big deal right now with energy prices so low. Uh, when energy prices start coming back around, uh, some of us start regretting maybe those SUV purchases that we made over the last year. <laughs> well, that'll be a bit more telling. Right, think, and that's right? another. I mean, that's another thing. We look at look at auto sales over the last few sure. years, just through the roof. And mm-hmm. I, of course, that that has a lot to do with the the energy prices. But overall, inflation. By most metrics, very subdued. Interest rates very low, as, as Simon mentioned. I mean, it is, it's it's a great time to be an investor. And I know a lot of people don't have jobs, but if you have a job, I mean, I, I think you're in a pretty good position with the economy right now. Well, and you just reminded me of something our colleague Morgan Housel uh, said last year, which is, if there's one thing we know about the jobs report, it's that it's wrong. <laughs> and it's an astute observation, and, really. And wouldn't, wouldn't it be amazing if, at some point in the future, we had a jobs report and they said, and there are no revisions? I think whatsoever. that would be the headline, yeah. wouldn't it? That yeah, would be. All right, let's get to some of the earnings. For the first time in a year, Costco put up positive same-store sales, but second-quarter profits came in a little bit on the light side, Jason. Yeah, I think that with with Costco, this is becoming just a question of how much gas they have left in the tank. Because we know how this story has unfolded, at least here domestically. They've done a wonderful job building out this big 
store presence here in the United States, uh, Canada even. They are building more uh, international stores, and, and that will continue the question for us. And we talk about this a lot in MDP, is, is how much of that uh, opportunity still exists, internationally speaking. Will they be able to match that same domestic opportunity? I'm not necessarily sure that they can, but that may not actually really matter. And, and I think that with the subscribers, the members that they have right now, they, they get these tr- tremendous renewal rates because the members that they have really enjoy the the experience and the low prices uh, and, and the customer service that they get from Costco. And, and that's not going to change. So I think they have sort of this great membership base that'll last uh, for some time to come. Really, the question is future generations, our kids. Are our kids going to be looking at Costco the same way maybe our parents did or we do? And I'm not necessarily sure they will. And I think that's that's going to be sort of the big point they need to address here with with online concepts like Jet.com and Boxed.com. Uh, I think it's going to be interesting to see here in the coming years if they forge any any deeper relationships with companies like these. They are working with Boxed.com to a degree as a supplier, and I think that's something that. Uh, they should probably work to continue to exploit. I imagine they will, because I think that that will give them an opportunity to grow that e-commerce side of the business that really is only about 3% of the overall business right now. Yeah, I'd say we, we've talked a lot about it. As Jason mentioned, Costco and Million Dollar Portfolio, it's, it's a big position in the portfolio. And I think the fear with that is, if you look at Costco's growth, Costco's been awarded a great earnings multiple for a long time for good reason. It's a great business, great management team. But there's a there's a strong possibility that what happened to Walmart could happen to Costco, where all of a sudden investors aren't willing to pay 25 plus times earnings for Costco, and maybe that comes down to 20 times or 15 times, and then you're looking at a much lower stock price. Um, that's kind of what happened to Walmart the last few years. Certainly happened to Best Buy a while ago. That's that's a big worry. And just an interesting point here to, to I think the, their resilience is we my wife and kids and I were driving by one of the local Costco's here on the way to dinner the other night and saw the lines for people wanting to get gas there at Costco. Now I can understand in an environment where gas prices are higher and they're going to Costco because that's going to be typically the lowest cost provider there. But even in the face of very low energy prices and gas prices, people are still going to Costco to get their gas and willing to wait in line to get it there, which is just, I think, a testament to really the loyalty that the typical Costco consumer still has. Hewlett-Packard Enterprise issued its first quarterly report as a standalone public company, and it looked like a pretty good one, Simon. Profits and revenue both slightly higher than expected, and the stock up 15% on Friday. Well, and a reminder now that this is Hewlett-Packard is split into two different companies, right? You've got kind of the legacy business, which is Hewlett-Packard Incorporated, ticker is HPQ, and then the one you just mentioned that just reported, Chris, Hewlett-Packard Enterprise, HPE. I think Maddie was just talking about compressing stock valuation multiples, and I think that, that right now the question between both Hewlett-Packard businesses, which stock is just too cheap to ignore right now? <laughs> the, the legacy business has saw about a 12% drop in revenue. This is a company that sells printers and PCs, declining businesses. And with the 12% drop in revenue, it's now selling at about a 5 PE multiple. I mean, this is a business that's just continually declined. They're calling Enterprise the growth driver of the business, and that saw revenue drop 2.5%, selling at a PE at about 12 right now. So, both of these businesses are, are, are tough slugs and, and you know really tough markets to compete in. Hewlett-Packard is trying to go after scale in a declining market for both of them. But Meg Whitman was the CEO of Hewlett-Packard. She got to pick which one she wanted to run, and she chose Enterprise. <laughs> Doesn't that tell us which one 
at least she thinks has the brighter future? Well, that's right. And data centers, co-locations of data centers are expected to grow about 63% in the next year and a half. Uh, Hewlett-Packard is going to be fighting for the servers that are going to be provided as hardware for those data centers. I think that Meg Whitman, who's also staying as chairman of, of Hewlett-Packard Incorporated, too, uh, has a better handle of where that business is going to go. Shares of Valiant Pharmaceuticals down more than 15% this week. The Canadian drug maker is being investigated by the SEC with questions surrounding their accounting practices. Uh, Jason, I don't know if there's fire but there sure does seem to be a lot of smoke. Well, and we talked a lot about this uh, throughout the week and even even uh, in, in our production meeting here. I, I think that we were all in agreement that typically that where there is smoke, there is fire, uh, particularly when you're talking about accounting issues and questions of leadership like that. Bottom line for me with this one, and I've said it before, to me, I mean, there are smarter people out there uh, with with more money and more information than than we could possibly have as individual investors regarding this situation. So there are enough red flags with a business like this for me to say thanks. I'll just look the other way and, and try to find uh, other ways to make money. This is a business that grows via acquisition, and so when you have a business that grows via acquisition like this. If the business model starts coming into question, or leadership starts coming into question, the stock price starts feeling that pressure. I mean, it's not like they have this balance sheet stacked with cash. Uh, the debt to equity here is out of control, and and they're faced with some really, really tough headlines to get through right now. Uh, share count, it's up almost 13 percent since 2010. Not surprising because of the acquisition strategy, but but they're not going to be able to use that that uh, those shares as currency for much longer. I don't think so. Uh, a lot of red flags here. I, I think. Uh, if you're invested in Valiant, you need to be digging deep and trying to figure out whether you want to stay invested with them. If you're not, I'd keep on walking by. <laughs> That's what I was going to say. Even though the stock is down some 60% from its high, a lot of investors out there are probably saying, "Wow, this looks like you know this is a bargain." I mean, this is a company that's recommended in a couple of our services here at the Motley Fool. But I'd say, that exactly right. When there's smoke, there's fire, and and this could get a lot worse before it gets better. And there might not be any more strategy with this company, especially if they're not able to make the acquisitions and do the kinds of financial accounting tricks. Maybe not tricks, but <laughs> strategies, alleged tricks, yeah. alleged tricks that, that they've been using in the past, and and. This is just one you want to avoid. Yeah. Uh, before we go to break, I think we need to touch on what is, for me anyway, the most bizarre story in all the years we have done this show, and that is the case of Aubrey McClendon. McClendon is the former CEO of Chesapeake Energy. He was indicted on Tuesday. The Justice Department charged him with conspiring to rig bids to buy oil and natural gas leases in Oklahoma. And then Wednesday morning, McClendon was killed when the SUV he was driving ran directly into a highway overpass at a high rate of speed. Oklahoma City Police are still investigating that accident. Uh, this was stunning, guys, because this is uh, certainly a CEO we've talked about in the past, uh, as much as anyone known for uh, or certainly being associated with the, the rise of natural gas over the years, but also a controversial CEO known for not being uh, shareholder friendly. Um, the, probably the most famous incident is when he took his collection of antique maps and sold it back to the corporation for twelve million dollars so that he could cover a margin call. But but really, just a, a bizarre end to McClendon. Bizarre, yes. And uh, while I never never met him, don't know him. 
we know basically what we research. We all know the adage, don't do it if you think it's going to end up in the headlines the next day. And I think for better and worse, McClendon probably didn't do that very well. Uh, he, he was in the headlines an awful lot, and, and it was unfortunate that it had to end this way. Yeah, I agree. It's a troubling story, Chris. Uh, I think that the root of it, though, goes down to corporate governments, though. You know, we look at a lot of companies, and there's a line between what's progressive and what's illegal out there. And, and typically, when you start exposing stuff that maybe or may didn't cross the line, it tends to expose bigger problems. Yeah, and I would say this was a person who was so successful and, and revered, really, in the industry. And I, I, so much, so many times that could, can get to someone's head. And I think at some point, he really thought he could do no wrong, like a lot of CEOs uh, do, and uh, you know it, it came back to haunt him in a big way. Well, and certainly a complex guy because for the you know for the incidents with shareholders, you know on the flip side, this is someone who donated tens of millions of dollars uh, to um, higher institutions like Duke University and the University of Oklahoma, uh, doing charitable work in Oklahoma City. So uh, our, our thoughts uh, are with his wife and children. We will be back after the break. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here in studio with Jason Moser, Simon Erickson, and Matt Argusinger. Tough fourth quarter for Staples. Profits and revenue both came in lower than expected. Same store sales fell. Is there any silver lining here, Matty? I, I don't think there is, Chris. I, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I've been talking about this industry for a little while. The office supply industry is just really, really in trouble. And I mean, if you look at Staples, uh, you know their sales were down seven percent. Uh, but if you, even if you but if you exclude the store closures, which they've had many, they've closed actually 242 stores over the last two years. Their sales were still down 06 uh, percent. So you know it's it's not a disaster by any means. But this is a this is a concept I think that's kind of lived its day and it's not really uh, growing anymore. And of course they've got this merger deal with Office Depot that they've been working on for more than a year now. Well, the FTC is 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 suing to block the deal. They think it's it creates unfair competition. Um, in the in the industry, which I mean, of a dying industry, that's that's interesting. <laughs> European regulators have actually approved the deal, but of course, there are a lot less staples and office depots in, in Europe. I I just think this is a business that's headed for the brink. I mean, if you look at what drove this business for years, I mean, it was computer sales, printers, ink cartridges, printer paper. Look, we're buying computers online or at the Apple Store, and we're just not printing as many things as we used to. So uh, I don't think they can reinvent themselves. And even if this merger goes through, I still think it's a dead man walking yeah, business. I think the <laughs> The concern over an unfair competitive advantage there, that assumes that someone would actually want to get into this market and compete. I mean, it's a dying industry, more or less. I mean, don't you do whatever you can to help keep keep these guys afloat? Well, and also, it also assumes that customers are going to be hurt in a certain way. But if you look at the options that customers have these days, sure. whether it's Walmart, Target, or, or buying printer paper on Amazon.com, it's... The, the, there's so many different places to get things these days, so I, I don't see how it's unfair competition. Fourth quarter profits for chipmaker Ambarella fell 71%, and yet somehow, Simon, that was better than expected. How low were the expectations for this quarter? Well, you know, Chris, they also had a one-time write-down of a deferred tax asset. So, if you pull that out, actually, the earnings per share on an adjusted basis were $0.64 cents versus $0.68 cents last year. Okay. So, not, not maybe as dramatic as the headlines might, might initially indicate. But Amarillo is in a tough spot right now because their largest customer is GoPro, of course, a uh, a favorite of, of many sports enthusiasts, action sports cameras, and that's just you know we've had two terrible 
quarterly reports from GoPro. And Amberella uh, sees their largest customers sitting on large amounts of their inventory. So the question on this company now becomes, can the other markets that Amberella is selling to pick up the slack for falling sales at GoPro? We're starting to see a lot of, of developments in IP security cameras, in flying cameras, also known as the drones market, and then also automotive cameras. And I think all of these are very interesting. It's going to be interesting to watch, one, the top line growth of those, but also the margins that they're capturing for Amberella as well. Shares of Kate Spade up big this week after fourth quarter same-store sales came in at 14%. That's a pretty strong holiday, Maddie. It was. It was a good It was a good uh, season for them. I mean, they did miss expectations kind of overall on sales and earnings, but uh, yeah, up 14% there, uh, and uh, even up 9%, even if you take out e-commerce sales, which were pretty, pretty strong. Again, though, I mean, we were talking before the show, fashion apparel is such a hard category. So, you've got Kate Spade up 20%. But this was a stock that was trading near forty dollars a share a couple of years ago, and so I just, you know, six months from now we could be talking about Michael Kors being up twenty percent, or uh, or limited brands being up twenty percent, or look what American Eagle has done over the past year. I mean, it's it's such a tough business, and I think my advice to any investor is just, unless you really like fashion apparel, you know something specific about the industry. I'd say I'd stay away as, as much as you can. Sure, I think we talked about this earlier in the week too with American Eagle. Uh, looked at Crocs, uh, all of which uh, you're you're just looking at fashion retail and any kind of a degree there. Very much a a valuation uh, based investing style. I think you really need to be focused on uh, the valuations of the stocks there, and then you have to be prepared to pull the trigger and sell when you feel like you, you've gotten something out of it. I was just going to say, it seems like more so than other industries. Fashion apparel um, timing becomes more crucial because any one of these companies we've mentioned has had a good run yeah, in a short absolutely. term period. Yeah, and energy too. I think we could say the same thing about about oil and natural gas. Great opportunities out there. You just got to know when to get in and get yeah, out. You don't, You're not buying a whole blindly. Exactly. You don't really think about fashion apparel as a cyclical industry, but and we don't talk about it much. But it certainly is if you think about it. it, it high valuations, time to get out. Guys, before we go to break, a uh, nice reminder that fascination with burgers is not limited to Americans. <laughs> a London man, formerly known as Sam Smith, has legally changed his name to Bacon Double Cheeseburger. The 33-year-old man said he applied for the name change after being out with his friends. Quote, it was the culmination of probably too many drinks in the pub where there was a conversation about names, Mr. Cheeseburger said in the interview. <laughs> He went on to say, quote, My fiancé is fairly reluctant about marrying a cheeseburger. This is something we are discussing a lot. Uh, let's bring in our man, Steve Broido, in from the other side of the glass. Steve, uh, I, I'm not going to ask you for marital advice for Mr. Cheeseburger, although uh, certainly he may, he may need some. But uh, if you had to change your name to something food-related, where would you at least be looking, if not the burgers? Uh, Hospitaliano. What is that? Hospitali Olive Garden, my friend. Oh, Hospitaliano. That's the deal. Well, it could have been worse for that lady. I mean, what he changes his name to Sloppy Joe. We're having a different conversation here. Completely different. All right. Up next, we will head to Japan for a report on international markets. Stay right here. This is Motley Fool Money. I need a dollar, dollar, dollar. That's what I need. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill. Bill Mann is the Portfolio Manager at Motley Fool Funds. He joins me now from Tokyo, Japan. How are you, my friend? I'm, yeah, I think yeah, you, you answered the question, where am I? I'm doing great. <laughs> what, doing great. I'm 14 hours ahead of you. <laughs> What's it like so, in the future? You know, if you want to, yeah, 
exactly. It's beautiful, man. <laughs> uh, what? Uh, I'm assuming you were at an investment conference of some sort. What uh, is? Is there a headline so far for what you've experienced and some of the presentations you've taken in? Oh, so uh, yeah. So Daiwa is uh, a Japanese broker, and they 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 handle a lot of our trading in Asia, and they have a Japanese and Asian equities conference, and so. It's a really good opportunity for, for us to come and meet with a bunch of companies. Some we own, some you know, some we're interested in, some we're learning about. It's a very efficient way to do it. And at these conferences, they also bring in uh, you know a lot of academics. Uh, they'll bring in folks from the finance ministry here in Japan. And so a lot of the, you know a lot of the topic here has been about the reasons for the negative interest rates that are, uh, you know, that, uh, that, that, uh, the Japanese central bank has, uh, you know, has, has applied. And, um, you know, this is, uh, a long time ago when I was, you know, I, I had written that there are four kinds of company countries in the world. There's uh, developed countries, there's developing countries, there's Argentina, and then there's Japan. And there's so much about this place that just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So, for a very long time, the Japanese stock market was flat to terrible. Um, it it se- flat would have been a flat would have been a great improvement, <laughs> right? <laughs> right. I mean, depending on what time period you want to you want to look at, but you know, for those who who don't follow it very closely, uh, where is Japan right now in terms of its stock market? And for investors, where, if anywhere, are the opportunities in Japan? Yeah, so Japan for for you know for twenty years was a was a market essentially in, in in decline, and the decline was based on two things: one, a massive bubble in the late eighties and early nineties, and then two, Japan is almost singularly horrible at uh, you know, at, at generating returns on capital based on you know, some really bad, frankly, bad corporate governance, but. That's improving. Uh, um, Japan was one of the best performing stock markets in 2015. Um, on you know, on basically the uh, the country throwing every fiscal and monetary uh, you know trick at the book and trying to uh, trying to make inflation uh, increase. There are some really good Japanese consumer companies. There are a lot of people here who you know. There are a lot of people who I've talked to who like the banks. I'm not. I, I, I'm not sure that I agree. Basically, because you know, until a couple of years ago, a negative interest rate environment was something that was just spoken of as you know, almost like a unicorn. Like it's something that 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 doesn't really exist, but it's you know, it's it's it's, it's theoretical. Um, yeah. So you know, I would say on the consumer side, you know, there there, there are a number of things that. Uh, that are pretty interesting, and you know, and, and the thing to remember about Japan, and, and has always been the case, is that its uh, its electronics um, its electronics industry is probably the most robust in the world. And you know, if you're if you're willing to do the work, you can find some really interesting uh, some really interesting ideas there as well. I know that you're taking in general sessions, as you said, with academics, uh, with investing leaders, but. Based on your Twitter feed that I follow, I know that you had some one-on-one meetings as well, including. Do I have this right? With Hello Kitty, like there's That's a. Right. <laughs> is, is there? Can I invest? Can I buy shares of Hello Kitty? 
You absolutely can. The company is called Sanrio, and it's uh, and it's it, it is uh, it's you would almost call it you know a very you know similar to Marvel, except not not nearly as powerful of a company as as Marvel was before it was taken out. Uh, but yeah, they are most of their properties is Hello Kitty. They also own Mr. Men. I don't know if you ever read those. So you you know to your kids, you have Mr. Tickle and Mr. Happy and you know, and, 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 and those titles. And so they own, they own a bunch of different, uh, they own a bunch of different characters that they essentially licensed out. It ought to be a great business. I wish they were better at it. I want to bring it back to the U S market in a moment, but I would be remiss if I did not get your thoughts on, um, where China is right now. Um, I know you had written recently that, uh, many Chinese stocks lack the type of governance that you need to be willing to invest. And I'm I'm curious, beyond just sort of your thoughts on China's market, what do you look for? What do you what do you need in terms of assurances before investing in Chinese stocks? Well, you know, for example, you 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 want to be invested in countries. Uh, at the top, where there is a culture of protecting uh, minority investors, because no matter where we go, we would be not only a minority investor but a foreign minority investor, and so uh, we would, in some ways, be the easiest scapegoat there is. You know, in, in, in you know in in a time of problem, you know the you know, the, the foreign investors want us to do this or that. Um, you know, so from from our standpoint. There really is no, you know, a minimal culture in 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 China for protecting or even thinking about minority shareholders as having rights to the company to the companies themselves. Most companies, most big companies in China, are really organs of state policy. They are they they are political versus you know as opposed to being economic um, entities, and that, that just doesn't hold any interest for us. You know, we look and look and look for small companies in China that uh, you know that that would fit our criteria, but it is just it is simply so hard to find any at the you know at this point that that sort of tick off all of the boxes for us having a good valuation, having a good management team, and having those types of corporate governance uh, culture in place because they really almost have to do it in spite of. You know, in spite of the fact that uh, you know, in, in in China, it is generally you know the opposite. So, we'll keep looking. You know, I I, I talk about China a lot, and uh, you know, I, I I think that uh, in a lot of ways they generated one of the most uh, one of the one of the cutest crises in history last year with their stock market, which they talked up and tripled, and then it came down by half, and so they had a market that was. You know, by the end, it was up thirty percent, and yet it was a disaster. Um, so we'll keep looking in China, but it's uh, it, it is a very very hard market to get to uh, to get comfortable with. You're listening to Motley Fool Money, talking with Bill Mann, portfolio manager at Motley Fool Funds. Here in the U.S., the S and P 500 has bounced back from its lows in February, still down so far for 2016. Um, I'm assuming for someone like you who is a value investor at heart. Um, you look at the market in the U.S. and you don't see a market that's down. You see a market with increasing opportunities. Is that safe to assume? That's exactly right. Well, and and I would say that the markets in the United States, if you if you were to go by the indices, the indices kind of lied to you in 2015 because if you took out the top, the the ten biggest companies on the S and P 500, 
the S&P 500 was was solidly negative in 2015. Uh, you know, people talk about the FANG companies, but literally, you just take the top 10 by market cap, and they and they they generated almost. In fact, they generated all of the return for the S&P 500. You go even smaller. You go to the mid caps in the U.S. and they they performed more poorly. You go to the small caps in 2015 was a terrible year on top of most of 2014 being a terrible year. So, yeah, um, the, fact that, uh, the, the fact that people finally freaked out uh, in the beginning of 2016, to me, had to do with the fact that the Big, Ten, the, the Big Ten finally broke a little bit. And we found that we've been finding incredible opportunities in small-cap companies. You know, um, we're, not, uh, we're not going, you know, for, for example, into the oil services industry because I think you have to be, you know, I think, I think you have to have some knowledge of where the price of oil is going. And that's, you know, that's a place where there's been an enormous, you know, an, an enormous amount of pain. But, you know, in a lot of other, in a lot of other segments and small and mid caps, yeah, we're finding lots of stuff that, uh, that's very, very attractive. And it's been attractive for a while, but, uh, you know, the fact that uh, people freaked out across the board provided some real opportunities for us. It was a week ago that Warren Buffett came out with his annual letter to shareholders. This is, uh, you know, must reading for lots of investors out there. And I wanted to get your thoughts on something because one of the things Buffett addressed in the letter was the what is referred to as the big four in terms of the Berkshire Hathaway holdings, and that's Coca-Cola, American Express, Wells Fargo, and IBM. And these are four stocks that over time have done well for Warren Buffett and Berkshire Hathaway, but recently are, none of them are lighting the world on fire. And when it came, and when it came to IBM, Buffett They're lighting shareholders on fire. Yeah, exactly. And and when it came to IBM, Buffett was very upfront as as is uh, as he typically is, saying, "Look, I'm confident about IBM making a turnaround, but I could be wrong." And for the first time that I can remember, and and you watch these guys more closely than I do, but for the first time that I can remember, Charlie Munger, his right hand man basically said, yeah, I'm not seeing it with IBM. And and I think, yeah. if, I think if it were put to a... I'm, I'm sure he supports Buffett 100%, but I, I feel like if it was put to a vote, Charlie Munger's voting thumbs down on IBM, and I'm wondering what you made of all that. Uh, you know, I think it's great, and I think it, 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 it really shows what an awesome culture that, uh, that Berkshire Hathaway has. I mean, it there are also a number of disclosures that he's come out because people get so excited when Berkshire buys anything and people forget that there are multiple people investing for Berkshire now. And so Buffett will come out and say, yeah, that wasn't me. So they have a great culture of, 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 of trusting each other. So, so the fact that, uh, the fact that Charlie was not able to, you know, to come on board and, uh, you know, and, and agree that IBM was a, was a, was a good opportunity it just really shows how you know how these guys uh, respect each other because he's not angry about it. I mean, if you were to ask Charlie Munger, he would have voted he would have voted uh, no on IBM. But if you were to ask him, he also would vote that he hopes that Warren is the one who's right. I mean, they're not playing the game of I'm right, you're wrong. They're playing the game of okay, this is your call. I hope that you are right, and I think that you are wrong, and that's. That's a really, really healthy process when you think about it. All right, last question, and then I'll let you get back to work. Uh, I'm giving you a choice. You can spend one hour 
talking with Warren Buffett at a Dairy Queen, or you can spend one hour talking with Charlie Munger at a bar. Two, <laughs> two, great, two great investors. You get to pick their brain for an hour, but you can only do it with one of them. Which one are you picking? Good gosh. I think, I think the setting question makes that very interesting. I think you've got to go, I think you've got to go Munger at the bar. I, that's that's the correct I answer. Mean, I, I, I mean, he could cause a fist fight. He's probably not going to get into a fist fight now. I mean, he, I, I, I really think that you've got to go. You've got to go Munger in the bar with like Jameson. Like it can't be. You know, it can't be. You know, it can't be super top shelf liquor. It's got to be hard drinking. And uh, yeah, I think that's exactly uh, that. That's exactly how you go. You can go to full. Although the other sounds pretty great too, <laughs> they both sound Love good. Love me but, a blizzard, but 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 you did make the right choice. You can go to full. <laughs> you can go to fullfunds.com and sign up for declarations. It is the free monthly newsletter from Bill Mann and his colleagues at Motley Fool Funds. Thanks for being here. Get home safe, my friend. Thank you. Take care, Chris. Coming up next, we'll give you an inside look at the stocks on our radar. This is Motley Fool Money. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Ellen, joined in studio once again by Jason Moser, Simon Erickson, and Matt Argusinger. Uh, guys, a couple of quick items before we get to the stocks on our radar. March is here, which means... The big South by Southwest Festival is just around the corner, and we are sending a team of fools to Austin, Texas, including me, Simon, Maddie. I'm looking forward to the trip. Oh, yeah. Excited. Uh, we're going to be doing our Market Foolery podcast from South by Southwest all week. So if you're going to be at the festival or you live in the Austin area, drop us an email radio at fool.com. We're trying to put together a small gathering of fools. Uh, also, for the first time ever, we are offering a digital pass to our recent investing conference in San Diego. We've got a three-minute highlight reel of the keynote speeches and breakout sessions. You can check it out by going to digitalpass.fool.com. That's digitalpass.fool.com. Email from someone who identifies himself or herself by the name Jester Bobbity. Let's just assume that that's not the given name from the parents. But anyway, <laughs> Jester Bobbity writes... I always get a little excited when I hear Chris say, coming up, we'll give you a look at the stocks on our radar. I listen to the pros and cons and the question from Steve Broido, and then, well, nothing really happens after that. I know I should research, <laughs> but I don't know what the next step is after that. What is the process for re- researching a company before you buy the stock? A great question. Um, we could probably spend a whole hour on this, but instead, sure. Jason, um, let's just go around the table. What's a stock on your radar, and what's one thing uh, you would advise in terms of researching either the company or the industry? Yeah, good. I think um, so. Airbnb and the sharing economy are getting all of the attention dollars here lately, but that does not mean I don't think that there is uh, is not plenty of room for traditional hoteliers to to make their hay. And I'm putting Marriott ticker M A R. Uh, on the watch list, bring it over to the watch list and MDP. Uh, neat business in that they primarily manage the hotels as opposed to actually owning or leasing the property. Takes a lot of the expense out of their business model to make a healthy margins there. And a big item coming up here with the recent uh, announcement 
that they're going to acquire Starwood. So this is going to create the world's largest hotel company in an industry where scale really is a competitive advantage. So uh, definitely one I'm, I'm looking uh, further into. And as far as how you could take your research here to the next level, Try to understand what some of the metrics that you want to pay attention to in regard to this business. What are the metrics that indicate success? One of those metrics here is revenue per available room. If you can see that that metric is growing, if it's growing faster than the industry average, then that means they're gaining share and leading the way. Heads on beds. That's what like it's it. all about in the hotel industry. Heads <laughs> like on beds. Steve Broido, question about Marriott. How do I know if I'm getting a good price on a Marriott room? It seems like there's so many sites out there, all these coupon codes, and I have no idea. I book a room, I have no idea. You know, Steve, I am so glad you asked that question because <laughs> I'm going to push another MDP holding that we love TripAdvisor. Marriott and Starwood are both on TripAdvisor's instant booking platform where you will, in fact, get the best price. Uh, for for your stay. So make sure to tre- to check TripAdvisor, their instant booking platform. They won't let you down. Simon Erickson, what are you looking at? Nicely done, first of all, JMO. Two picks for the price of one. Hey now. Jester Bobbity. Uh, I, I would also say what JMO says also. Look at operational metrics that companies are reporting and what really makes these companies tick. A lot of financial uh, reporting is just you know the, the earnings and, and the revenue and stuff like that. We need to get to the second layer of what's really driving that and why are these companies actually performing as well or not as well as they are. The company on my radar is, is actually Disney, uh, ticker DIS. We recently purchased this in Million Dollar Portfolio. Uh, it's been selling off lately because of a lot of fears from analysts on cord cutting and uh, de- declining subscribers from ESPN. But I don't think that that's as big of a uh, concern as, as maybe a lot of the media is portraying it as right now. ESPN, of course, wholly owned by Disney, uh, is has got some of the highest fees that they're getting from subscribers each month from the cable networks. That continues to stay strong. And live sports still accounts for 93 of the 100 largest TV programs of last year. I think Disney's still a winner going forward. Steve, question about Disney? Was Star Wars a win, a huge win, a okay win, or not a win at all? Uh, yes, it was a huge win. I think it's still going to manifest for for years too. After you get past the studio networks, you've got merchandising and you know the media networks and everything that's going to come from that too. So thumbs up in my book, Steve. Maddie, don't call it a comeback, but I'm liking Zillow ticker ZG. Uh, you know we're heading into that strong uh, spring home buying season, but that's not really why I'm liking Zillow right now. Uh, CEO Spencer Raskoff was on CNBC last month, and he was asked some about guidance or some minutia with the company's earnings, but his response was great. He said, you know, I'm not really thinking about that. I'm thinking about how to grow Zillow into a $5 billion or $10 billion annual revenue business, and I think I know how to get us there. Uh, with Zillow, really pay attention to operating cash flow, less stock-based compensation. A lot of companies, of course, report great co- cash flow, but it's because they're adding back a lot of stock-based compensation. With, with Zillow, I know we're digging the details here, but look at their operating cash flow profitability. Uh, add back the stock-based conversation, still see if they're profitable. That's what you want to do with a company like Zillow. Steve? At the end of the day, is Zillow just trying to blow up the housing market in terms of how transactions are done? So, just trying to kill off the model of 3% goes well, here, 3% goes there. Exactly. Well, it's, it really with Zillow, it's not so much about killing the middleman, but connecting the middleman to more buyers and sellers. And that's what Zillow's trying to do. You got one you like, Steve? Um, Marriott, I don't know. Marriott sounds kind of cool. I, I I don't know much about hotels, but I've stayed at some. They seem awfully nice. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks for being here, guys. That's going to do it for this week's Motley Fool Money. We will see you next week. Yeah.